you have a Bible with you, uh, please open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we're going through a study of the Ten Commandments. And uh, it was already read, the Seventh Commandment, in our Gospel reading in uh, Matthew, You shall not commit adultery. Um, This is more a fleshing out of the biblical idea of marriage and sex in Ephesians 5. So we're going to look at that as our sermon text. But talking about the seventh commandment, both in the negative and positive senses. You know, you get a a negative sense in the commandments. Usually, thou shalt not is the framing. Uh, But the positive is also implied. So you shall not commit adultery, but you shall uh, take delight in God's good gift of sex uh, as he intends it to be used. So we're going to think about both of those things. Um, usually at this point I try to drum up interest in the sermon, but you know, I'm figuring surely I don't have to do that today. My son described uh, how sex was described to him as he was growing up, both in school and church. He said, like that he said, uh, sex is something that is extremely dangerous and dirty that you should save for someone you love very much. <laughs> right? And uh, I sort of feel like that's the message that you get from the church a lot of times. Um, I've promised to try to speak euphemistically uh, in the sermon for people with kids, but when I try to do that, I feel like I'm in a Who's Line sketch where, you know the one where they say, if you know what I'm saying, if you know what I'm talking about? It seems like every way I can frame a sentence uh, sounds like a double entendre. I told Julie I thought I could do this whole sermon only with country music lyrics, and uh, I think I could, but I'm not going to. So, um, but boy, like the like the reflection quote said, this has got to be the least popular of the Christian virtues. Uh, um, C.S. Lewis's quote there, uh, and one of the the oddest things for a Christian to live out as an ethic in a world that doesn't understand Christianity very well or isn't familiar is our sexual ethic. This was true in the early church. It's true for us today. People are uh, perplexed by the Bible's sexual ethic. But people are perplexed about sexual ethics anyway in the culture. I think it's a pretty uh, complicated subject. Um, Our view of it sounds strange, but nobody seems to have it really well figured out. And so it feels at least worth a hearing to give an account of and some defense of a biblical view of sexuality, and along with that, to sit ourselves under the good news of Jesus Christ for people who feel ruined or feel trapped by this whole subject, uh, to know that there's hope in him. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and eyes to you, uh, that we might know and understand you and be shaped by you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Read with me um, Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And this is the word of the Lord. So, uh, how's the whole uh, sexual revolution thing working out for you? It's uh, supposed to set you free, right? Uh, Everything's going to be fine. We're going to throw off the repressive shackles of cultural mores and uh, religion. And we're going to be happy finally. We're going to be able to pursue pleasure in our lives without all of this guilt and shame and repressive morality. Finally, thank goodness, it's going to be great. We've got birth control now, so you're free to do whatever you want with anyone who will consent. Or to imagine the things that you would do with someone if you could get someone to consent. Right? Um, this is the freedom. This is the, these are the, the new morality ideas. Um, it sounded good. I was young when people first started talking out loud about these kind of things. And uh, it sounded freeing. But I feel like we've been tricked. Because what... Um, was supposed to be freeing hasn't really turned out to be that way. It feels more diabolical, like we've been lied to. And in cynical moments, I'd say it feels like um, we solved the problem of having men who were selfish and exploitative and promiscuous by inviting women to also be selfish and exploitative and promiscuous as if that was going to make us thrive more as human beings. And um, so we reap bitter fruit from that. And intimacy seems more elusive to us than ever in a uh, sexually saturated culture. Intimacy is too much to hope for in most people's honest moments. So you have people who are dying to be loved but afraid to drop their guard. And uh, the sexual revolution has made that worse. People who despair of ever being loved because they don't have uh, the ideal body type that's flashed in front of our eyes every day. Or we have people who despair of ever being loved for anything except the shape of their body, who are constantly objectified. We have people who hate the whole subject of sexuality because they've been so hurt and exploited uh, by other people's behavior. We have families crushed and lives ripped apart by infidelity. And people bear the pain of that their entire lives. We have people so saturated in two-dimensional images that their very souls have become flattened as well. And they have uh, no real hope of experiencing actual intimacy with another person in the world. We have the tragedy of abortion where at the altar of sexual freedom, uh, we have laid down our children. And all of this from... Uh, the thing that was supposed to set us free and make our lives rich. We live in a world now where men won't grow up and women get hard. And that's the fruit of the sexual revolution. And so, even if you admit some of that, it's worth giving a listen, maybe another listen, uh, to the Bible's take on what sexuality is all about, what it's for. And how Jesus can reshape lives that have been ruined and trapped by sexual behavior and sexual sins. So let's look at it under those kind of those two headings. One is 
uh, the Bible's idea of what sex is. And the second one is uh, how Jesus brings healing and beauty to people who feel like their lives are ruined. First, the biblical idea of sex, and I'll start with what it's not. You feel like you're sort of uh, required to choose between two poles when you think about sex in our day. Um, And these terms aren't great, but they rhyme, kind of. They start with the same letter. One is what I'll call the pagan view, and one is what I call the the prudish view. And it's like you're, you're forced maybe to choose between these two poles. The pagan view, as I'm calling it, is the belief that uh, sex is uh, just biological and therefore really is nothing but an appetite. Um, that is, it's an itch. And when you itch, you scratch. When you're hungry, you eat. When you feel amorous, you have sex. And that's all it is. It's a dopamine shot. And uh, because dopamine feels good, sex feels good, probably it's a biological e- a, uh, evolutionary echo that says, you know, you've, you've uh, increased your chances to procreate, so your brain rewards you with chemicals. Um, ain't love grand, right? It's just an itch. It's what leads to the hookup culture. It's what leads to the Tinder app, is the idea that sex isn't anything. Um, on the other side, though, of the pagan view is sex is everything. Like Sex is the thing that's going to ameliorate the existential loneliness of life, uh, the thing that's going to give us some kind of uh, meaning that we grasp for, some kind of a connection uh, that is mystical for us that we lack otherwise in our lives. Michael Foucault said this, uh, that sex is more important than our souls, It's the master key to self-knowledge, and it's ultimately the source of our salvation. That's a lot of pressure to put on sex, I would say. The master key to our identity, um, the source of our salvation. So in the the pagan view then, whether sex is everything or nothing, uh, you kind of understand C.S. Lewis's illustration, if you got a chance to read that in the reflection section of the bulletin. Uh, where he said if you went to a, a culture and saw that uh, in the dorm rooms of college boys they had posters of food and uh, they would glare at these posters and go to each other's dorm rooms and look at the posters and say, you know, check out the glaze on that rack of ribs. Um, you'd say, well, that's a weird perspective to have on food, right? If you went to a burlesque show and, you know, the... Uh, The racy music is playing and slowly uh, the curtain is raised to reveal a cheeseburger on a platter and everyone's standing there salaciously looking at it. You'd say, these people have some food issues. (laughs) And so a person from a normal place might come to our culture and say, maybe you have a sex problem. (laughs) Maybe uh, you aren't looking at this thing right. It looks like you're obsessing on it. So the other option then is to become a prude, right? See the destructiveness and harm that comes from treating sex like it's nothing, and so become a prude. Sex is dirty and shameful, a necessary evil at best for the propagation of the species. I hate to say, but I think a lot of people have heard that message most loudly from the church. Um, There have been times in the church's history where that's been very explicitly said, that... um, Sex is only for procreation, and even then is shameful and dirty morally. Um, And times where the church has said that married couples shouldn't have sex uh, during pregnancy. 
and notions like that, uh, which um, put a stigma on sex that the Bible certainly does not put on it. Did you listen when Darren was eloquently reading the uh, Proverbs 5 passage, the frank eroticism that you see in the Scripture? You know, I, I don't know my language as well at all. I do know enough to know that almost every time they have a chance to, biblical translators use euphemisms. Instead of uh, saying what the original scripture writer said, but in Proverbs 5, they weren't, you know, be intoxicated with your wife's love, be enamored with her breasts, right? I mean, this isn't a prudish idea or a notion that sex is dirty or shameful, right? The Bible celebrates sex as a gift of God, and prudishness is not a biblical idea for us. Uh, To quote the modern day prophet Julie Garland, I didn't get married for nothing. Right, <laughs> But culture gets nervous if you start talking about any limits on uh, sexual desire or sexual expression. People think that you're somehow denying your humanity if you put limits around this natural desire uh, for sexuality. But you deny other desires that are natural in your life. Uh, without feeling like you've got some sort of a problem with repressiveness and being uptight. Fatty foods. Do you have a natural desire for fatty foods? Do you like blooming onions? Or are you so trained by modern uh, uh, dietitians that you can't even think about it? Blooming onions, if they weren't bad for you, would be so good, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be? How about Krispy Kreme, if you're not going to go with blooming onions? Um, Fatty foods, you say, these things are not good for me, but I want them. Like, it's natural desire that I have to want them. And why should I repress my humanity by saying no to these foods uh, that I want, that are good? You got some kind of prudish view of food? You against food? What, are you scared of food? Well, I'm kind of scared of food, but um, <laughs> the idea is that it, it's not good for you. And you deny your desires, natural desires, bodily desires, uh, because you have a reason to. Right? It's not like if you eat the, Dunkin', the uh, Krispy Kreme donut that it tastes bad because it's bad for you. It tastes great. But, you know, long term, this is, this is a self-destructive behavior, at least the way I eat them. And, uh, and so you limit yourself, but that doesn't make you a prude. Right? Um, it makes you someone who's paying attention to how bodies work. How God made us to live here. We'll give another example. Say you go to somebody's house and they have an elaborately expensive and old mean vase. As we say in Georgia, you may say vase. I don't know. Um, And they're using it to hold the toilet brush. What would you say to your friend who is using an extremely expensive vase as a toilet brush? Um... Would you say, what are you doing? <laughs> this is way too nice and important to be used to this way. If, would your friend say, well, what a prude. What are you, like, you're really uptight about vases, apparently. Say, no, I'm not. I'm just, that's something really special, and you're using it for something really gross. And uh, it's just, that's a distortion, right? Um, it's not prudishness to say that the vase shouldn't be used for that. It's an appreciation of what the vase is. And so, um, move to what sex is for then, biblically. And it's very theological. 
Which may be why it's a hard sell in the culture, because it's all wrapped up in what it means to know Jesus Christ. But sex is a signpost for us that points to a relationship of intimacy with God. It's a pointer to a relationship of intimacy with God himself. And uh, like it says in verse 32 in the passage, it says the mystery is profound, talking about marriage. But I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That God relates to his people as a husband. And that in him, we have uh, this ultimate intimacy where we are completely naked and unashamed, to use the Genesis language, and yet secure and accepted and loved and delighted in, uh, in a way that we are uh, made to be in our highest form as human beings. Like the, the greatest good for human beings that the church has taught through the years is for us to have the beatific vision, the, the vision of the face of Jesus Christ. And that everything we've longed for in this life is uh, a pointer to what we experience when we see his face um, finally. And the marriage relationship is peculiarly designed for this purpose. It's supposed to uh, anticipate and point to the intimacy that we have with Jesus. That's what it's for. One with him, naked and unashamed. And therefore, he says in verse uh, in verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They'll be intimate uh, physically, but also in every other way. Uh, they'll be intimate. Their whole lives will be shared, and they'll experience in a limited way what it means to be naked and unashamed before another person. Experience intimacy, experience being uh, loved deeply and accepted and desired by someone that you admire very much. And this is an indicator for us of what it's like to be loved and known by God in that way. So as that kind of a signpost, though, it only works in a committed, covenantal, permanent, whole life sharing relationship. It only works as a signpost and pointer that way when you are socially connected and bound to someone legally uh, connected and bound to someone, financially connected and bound to someone, and permanently connected and bound. Uh, that in a relationship like that, sex works as an inducement, a help, an accentuator of intimacy. It's, uh, it's not the most uh, eloquent analogy, but it's grease, um, it's oil in the engine. Right? You know, it makes, uh, it makes intimacy easier for a married couple to have physical intimacy sexually. Right? It's supposed to work that way. It's almost like a sacrament of the relationship. Um, it's the celebration of the embodied picture of the oneness that a husband and a wife have. And that's what sex is supposed to be for us. And that's a lot of weight to put on sex. We, we think sex is, is uh, mystically valuable as Christians, um, because we believe the way God's made us and the way he describes this, you can't, you can't have casual sex. You can't check your soul at the door uh, in a sexual encounter. You can try. You can harden your heart to where it feels like you're doing that. But uh, that's not what sex is, and that's not how it works. You can't check your soul at the door. The problem is, it's super 
risky and super scary and super vulnerable to share yourself with another human being this way. Financially, socially, legally. Share your names. Um, share your future. There's so many ways people could damage you if you do that. Right? There's, there, you're so exposed if you do that. And so people push back against it and say, I, I don't know if I can go that far. I, maybe, maybe I'm committed enough in the situation I'm in and um, don't have to go all that far. So we like each other well enough to go ahead and sleep together. Um, but I don't want to get married. The vulnerability of that. Well, I mean, there are two sides. One could be the selfishness of that. I want a way out. You might, I might not always feel about you the way I do today, and so I want, I want an escape hatch, so I don't want to be bound um, in some entrapping in, in legal way. Um, I, I, you know, this is the John Hartford song. It's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me want to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. It's knowing I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds and the ink stains that have dried upon some line. You know, that idea. I don't want to commit to you whole soul. I don't want to give everything to you uh, because I want to keep my options open. The other side of it is I don't want to give everything to you because I'm terrified to give everything to you. Especially, this is true, if you've been hurt. And if you've been badly hurt in these areas, it feels almost impossible to give yourself over financially and socially and legally to someone as well as physically. It's uh, terrifying to do. Um, But the way marriage works and sex within it works in God's world is that it functions inside a covenant. It functions inside that kind of permanent relationship so that our connection to each other is not based on our present feelings. It's based on our past promises and our future hopes. Right? It's not, I'm just really into you right now. It's, I'm going to commit myself to you long term, come what may. And I have hope of what Jesus is doing in our lives for the future. So I'm going to stay with you, come what may. That's why when we take wedding vows, they're not about how we feel right now. They're about what we're going to be and do in the future. Right? It's not like, I don't have any other lovers right now. It's, I'm not going to have any. Right? Um, it's not, since you're healthy and rich right now, I'm with you. It's whether you're rich and healthy or not in the future, I'm with you. It's future-oriented within that covenant. And here's the thing, and this may be a lot, a bridge too far for you to buy, but outside the covenant of marriage, sex works backwards. Instead of doing what it's supposed to do in a marriage, which is uh, uh, enhance intimacy and create uh, grease in the marriage where there's friction to... Make it easier for you to be together and to love each other committedly. Um, Outside the covenant, marriage hardens you. And it makes you uh, more brittle in your relationship, more self-protective, less able to trust other people, less able to commit yourself to other people, less able to be vulnerable to other people. And I don't know, is that true in your experience that... um, Sex used outside of its context works against intimacy instead of for it. I mean, most dramatically, and I think unarguably, this is what happens in pornography, where the tie between sex and intimacy is absolutely cut 
There is no connection between sex and intimacy in pornography. And any kind of sex outside the covenant, though, does have that destructive effect on us. It makes us less able to commit, less able to trust, less able to be vulnerable with someone else. And that's why there are biblical protections around marriage and sex. That's why it's limited. It's why the Ming vase can only be used for things that are worthy of the Ming vase. um, Not because we're prudish about sex, but because we think it's immensely valuable. God made it that way. It's a picture of our intimacy with Jesus. So let's talk secondly then and briefly about the good news we have from Jesus about sexuality. Because so many people feel ruined or trapped uh, by past history. Like you've dug ruts that could never be undug in your life and that can never be healed. That you've uh, endured wounds or you've inflicted wounds that can never be forgiven or healed. Um, But look what it says in verse 25 about what Jesus did for us. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, which is to change us from the inside out, genuinely, deeply change us, to bring beauty out of brokenness, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word. Would it be great to feel cleansed sexually? Uh, Would that feel like uh, too much to hope for? experience in your life. We've been cleansed by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That you could be beautiful again. That you're not ruined. That the way people have spoken to you and treated you is not the truth about you and it's not the way that God looks at you and speaks to you. It's great hopes for us but Jesus came to our rescue like you would approach a beautiful painting that had been painted by a master and had been vandalized and cut. You wouldn't throw it in the trash. You'd go do everything you could to restore it as uh, gently and wholly as you could. And the way that we've been broken by uh, sexual sin, uh, Jesus isn't willing to throw us onto the trash heap of life. He's come to our rescue, and he's going to fix us. And he's going to make us clean and make us beautiful again. And the things that you think you can never escape, he says you can't escape. He has the power to sanctify even you. Think you'll never be clean or beautiful again. He says, I can make you without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, those, those are sweet words. Those are sweet words. Um, he didn't come to shame you into compliance sexually because that doesn't work. Right? Shame doesn't change you, thinking, oh, I might be found out, or um, I'll hate myself in the morning if I do this. That doesn't stop anybody. Guilt doesn't stop you. Willpower isn't enough to fix you. Uh, It's not. Your heart desires are too strong for a little willpower to deal with. You have to have new desires. And that's what Jesus comes to change. You can't just uh, become sexually pure Because you're scared of STDs or unplanned pregnancies. You know, that's just not how it works. You need new intimacy with Jesus Christ uh, that will cause you to go into the world with your soul not so bare and empty. So that you can limit yourself uh, where you have desires that don't fit God's plan. And where you can be content with him when you don't have any outlet for uh, your sexuality at this point. It's a relationship with him 
that affects us on the level of our desires that gives us any hope for change uh, sexually. So he reshapes our desires, the ruts that you're, you have dug in your mind, the selfishness that you've become so accustomed to use thinking about sex can be changed. You know, I mean, the Ten Commandments are given to people who are fresh out of slavery, saying, look, you're free now. Let's talk about what your life's going to look like. And you could come free out of your slavery to sexual sin and hear this is what your life can look like now uh, because of your connection to Jesus. People say that uh, when a man pays a prostitute, he's actually looking for God. And that lines up pretty well with what the Bible says here. Um, so instead, let's look for God straight. Um, let's look for God. Intimacy with him changes our desires. And then the other thing he can do, and this is maybe feels more miraculous, is that he can restore trust in people who have been badly betrayed. Um, I mean, I mean, for some of you, the whole idea of talking about sex at all is terrible because you've been treated terribly. And uh, Jesus knows that and has come to our rescue as well. Because in his tender care, we learn what it feels like to take steps of vulnerability and to realize that even when we're exposed before him, he still loves us. He's still merciful to us. He doesn't turn his face away from us. That we learn little by little what it's like to be naked and unashamed before Jesus. And over time, this enables us to take steps trusting and being vulnerable with other people. Not because we think other people are so trustworthy, but because we think Jesus will take care of us. And I don't mean that's fast, and I don't mean that's easy, but I mean there's hope because of Jesus' love for us. Fighting against sexual uh, sin takes work. There are things that do help. Having fences in your life, it's like you don't go to the grocery store, grocery store when you're hungry. You know, you know when you're tempted for things that are going to be a special problem for you and you take action to, to not do those things. But the fences won't fix you. They just help you a little bit. They're never enough. A connection to Jesus is the only thing that's going to change a heart that is, has distorted loves and a distorted notion of sexuality. So pastors talk about these problems a lot with people. I'll tell you a happy story. Um, friends of mine um, where the husband was living... A complete secret life that no one knew anything about and had many, many, many casual sexual encounters. And it all came out one terrible weekend. And it was heartbreaking and infuriating and hopeless. And, you know, we just sat there and shook our heads and cried with nothing to say. We figured they'd get divorced because... Adultery is such a violation of the marriage covenant that Jesus allows divorce for adultery. Just like for when people are abandoned or uh, driven away by abuse. Um, it breaks the covenant. And uh, so that divorce can be allowed, we thought surely they were going to get divorced. But they put themselves in the hands of some really uh, wise, mature Christians who dealt with the man's addiction issues in light of intimacy with Jesus and who dealt with the wife's towering trust issues in light of the safety she had in Jesus. And they made it. I should say they're making it because they tell you it's hard every day still. But I got to do a uh, 
wedding vow renewal service for them. It's one of the sweetest things I've ever gotten to do as a minister. Because I was standing there amazed that God's mercy could change things I didn't think could change. And he was proving me wrong. So that story doesn't end with them having uh, an ideal soulmate that's able to validate and complete them. That's not the end of their story because marriage is good, but marriage isn't Jesus. Marriage is not going to validate you and complete you. But when people find delight in Jesus, they're enabled to uh, turn away more and more from destructive desires. And when they feel safe in Jesus, they learn how to trust people again. Because when you're naked and unashamed before Jesus, you can be naked and unashamed before somebody else. Let's pray.